Hello, Orangefield. It's nice to be back. I was here in September. If you were out, you might remember. Um, and you're here again. <laughs> Wonders never cease. Um, it's lovely to be here. And yes, I, I have found it helpful. I hope you have too. Thanks to Gary for his welcome. Thanks to Dave and the other musicians for leading us thus far. And yes, that's our theme for this evening. When I was here in, in September, I'd already been booked for November. Um, so I kind of had in, in my head what, what would be two things that, that might go together. And, and having walked with you a little bit through a profound passage in Philippians, if you were out, you'll remember that, no doubt, the road to humility. Um, you remember how we, we took Christ's ascending road from the very side of God to the very depths of human existence with his death on the cross and then back up again to the highest place and to earn the right to bear the name that is above every name, the name of Yahweh himself. And we thought a little bit about how that then is a pattern, that is a model, that is a shape that our own lives should have as we serve one another in climbing down from the heights of our pride to be given in the service of others in humility and we all know how challenging that is. So can I find you anything more challenging for, for tonight? Well, I don't know. Um, but from Christ, the very wisdom of God, which I think you may see before we're done, is part of what Paul is trying to say to the Colossians. That's my, that's my part two, a little uh, second piece of Paul, uh, if you like. So before we, we come to uh, the, the next slide and, and ultimately to... Um, the, the reading which comes in a moment. Let, let's just uh, take a moment to prepare specifically for, for God to speak to us through his word um, and let's invoke the Holy Spirit's help as we do that. Let's pause and pray. Lord, you have blessed us with the power of words and we sometimes use it well and we sometimes don't. But you, in your Son, Jesus Christ, have shown us word incarnate, word made flesh. And also in the scriptures, we have your word and its record for us that we can consult any time. But without the aid of your spirit, that word will not come alive for us and lodge right at the heart of us and make the changes that there need to be. So we ask you, uh, Holy Spirit, to come and take your word and plant it deep within us and grant us the ability and the readiness to respond through Christ our Lord. Amen. And as that slide tries to say, everything here, it seems to me, revolves around the theme you in Christ and Christ in you. You, of course, being initially the Colossians, but also, by extension, you and, and me tonight. I want to concentrate, as it says, on Colossians 1.28 to 2.5, but in order to get the drift, we're going to pick up our reading now at verse 24. I am now rejoicing in my sufferings for your sake, says Paul, and in my flesh I am completing what is lacking in Christ's afflictions 
for the sake of his body, that is, the church. I became its servant according to God's commission that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery that has been hidden throughout the ages and generations, but has now been revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. It is he whom we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone in all wisdom so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil and struggle with all the energy that he powerfully inspires within me. For I want you to know how much I am struggling for you and for those in Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face. I want their hearts to be encouraged and united in love so that they may have all the riches of assured understanding and have the knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I'm saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments, for though I'm absent in body, yet I am with you in spirit, and I rejoice to see your orderliness and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So let me take just a moment or two and take account of what Paul says in the opening few verses that kind of got us clued in. And I think the main thing is verse 25, where Paul mentions his commission from God. This commission, he says, made him a servant of Christ's body, the church, including your church, Colossians. So what task exactly was he commissioned to carry out? Well, as apostle to the Gentiles, his job through his gospel was to reveal Christ to them. And notice how he twice mentions a mystery there in 26 and 27. A mystery, well, in everyday terms, I suppose that could be a whodunit. Uh, you've probably all seen a, or read an Agatha Christie. Or a where'd I put it? You know, the mystery of where's the phone, where are the keys? Or something else we've set down somewhere intelligent and then promptly forgot. So that's an everyday mystery. But when Scripture says mystery, it's a little different. It's something hidden from us till God chooses to reveal it to us. And look how long this one, as it says, was hidden. But not anymore. It was Paul's job to reveal it, and now it's an open secret. Those who were not God's people are now God's people, his saints. God's good news for Gentiles, non-Jews, in Colossae in the first century, still God's good news in the 21st century for Gentiles like us here in Belfast. 
So as we read on, let's keep in mind Paul's commission because Christ in us is also our hope of glory since we came to belong to him by faith. And that's still the apostolic or the Pauline gospel today. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Epaphras, Paul, Timothy, the whole Pauline team proclaiming Christ in you, the hope of glory. Earlier on in, in Colossians, we sort of rewind here in chapter 1, 15 to 20, Paul had reminded them of who Christ is. It's another brilliant passage from Paul's pen. Paul's great description of Christ in Colossians, scan it with me, image of the invisible God, firstborn of all creation, head of the body, the church, the beginning, firstborn from the dead, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, the one through whom God reconciled to himself all things. Of course, this is all familiar to us, but familiarity shouldn't breed contempt. It's stupendous, isn't it? It's fantastic to think that this is who Christ is. But when people hear who he is and respond as we have done, joining our lives to his by faith, that's just the beginning. Their hope of glory, our hope of glory, those who've joined Christ by faith, still has to be made sure. So, says Paul, we warn them, we teach them in all wisdom so that one day we can present them all mature in Christ. Well, what does this warning and teaching everybody towards maturity involve for Paul? What, what's a mature-making ministry? For this, 29, I toil and struggle says Paul. Literally, he says, according to his in-working that is working in me in power. Paul switches here from we back to I. You see, the Colossians actually know only one member of Paul's team well, and that's Epaphras, because he's the one who brought them the gospel. Now, though, it's the team leader Paul himself, who's writing to them. And Paul wants them to know that the way to describe his ministry on their behalf is hard labor. Hard labor to bring to maturity the church in Colossae or along the Lycus Valley, just a few miles in Laodicea, to get those churches to maturity one day. He says, in and through my hard work, God is hard at work. A sort of synergy, energy kind of a thing. God's hard at it. And I, Paul, with my team, we're hard at it. And all with one aim, presenting every Colossian, every Laodicean who believes in Christ, mature in Christ one day. Maturity in Christ. This is Paul's cause. This is what gets him up early in the morning. This is what his whole ministry is about. 
And this is what his letter to Colossae is for. Paul is working tirelessly with God to finish what God started when Christ was preached to them. And they were brought into a new humanity in Christ. That's Paul's cause. And for that cause, you'll not be surprised, he gives everything. Notice the cost to Paul in verse 29. The words he uses, toil, struggle, energy. Has not every worthwhile cause got a cost? Price tag? Don't we all know that? If we've made anything a cause in our lives. And maturity in Christ is no different. It doesn't come cheap, Colossians. Your hope of glory is my hard graft. So, as your vacancy in Orangefield proceeds, and it must be proceeding because it's two months since I was here last, spare a prayer for your pastors. For the one that you will one day call, Oh, I know that's some way off yet. For Danny, your, what's the terminology we use in PCI? Convener. And for Gary here, holding the fort, if that's the right expression, Gary. But Gary isn't Paul, nor is Danny, and nor is or will be your next minister, whoever he or she turns out to be. But let me tell you this, that Gary's cause and Danny's as convener held responsible through presbytery by the General Assembly for the vacancy in this congregation and the minister that will one day come and lead you, their cause is and will be your maturity, just like Paul's for Colossae. And very often the cost that goes with the cause is similar. And that's where you need to cast your mind back to all those years that Ken gave you and to how much of himself he gave as he gave you what God had given him to share for your growth to maturity. So as you give your service and as you pray for Gary giving his And you remember with gratitude what Ken did and you assist Danny in his work. In all that week in, week out stuff, do give thanks for your various pastors. By the way, I really should say with you looking at at, at that, uh, that alliteration is very rare from me in a sermon, honestly. Um, One one of the reasons being that it's too easy with with fancy words of the same letter to kind of straightjacket what the scripture might actually be saying. And and so quite often I I avoid it almost like the plague. But this part of Colossians is rather densely packed. And I just had a thought that maybe, maybe it's, you can decide, uh, it's helpful on this occasion. And uh, there's no extra charge tonight for uh, all of the words beginning with C. Now, we finally make it into Colossians 2. Verse 1. Here, Paul underlines, he said already, he underlines it again, his struggle which costs him everything in the cause of the Colossians' maturity. And he says that this is his combat. Colossians, I want you to know how great is my combat on your behalf. I'm translating the word for struggling 
differently because it's a Greek word that can evoke military combat or even athletic combat, like in wrestling or something like that. Paul uses it to label his combat, his struggle for their maturity. A fight for the sake of Colossae, a fight on behalf of Laodicea, a fight for all believers who've come to Christ during Paul's mission to the Lycus Valley, even if they've not yet seen him face to face. Now, he doesn't tell us what the fight involves, what the issues are. We can imagine the principalities and powers. We can imagine the power of sin in people's lives and in institutions and in society. We can imagine a whole, a whole sort of things. But whatever the fight might be against, he's not talking about that. He's talking about his fight, his combat for the sake of believers in various locations. So it doesn't just happen automatically. The apostolic gospel is a fight. And here we also learn the great concern, the great, we might say, care that Paul has for the welfare of these churches in mid-combat. You see, most Colossian or Laodicean believers have never set eyes on him. It's, it's Epaphras that they know. He is the one who revealed Christ to them. But Paul warns them and wants them to know that they are part of his cause. They're included in the cost that he bears in his toil as he's engaged in his combat out of concern for them. They're Christ's, but because they're Christ's, as apostle of the good news of Christ, Paul can say that they're also his. Their maturity really matters to him. He's, he's really given over to their service. Just as your maturity matters to your elders who are scattered about the congregation this evening, your associate minister, your convener, as that will matter to your future minister too. So what then does progress towards maturity actually look like? Does Paul help us get a handle on that? Well, look at verse 2. Back in verse 9 of chapter 1, he'd already asked in his prayer there that you, Colossians, Laodiceans, may be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all spiritual, and there's the little pair that we got in Proverbs and Job, wisdom and understanding. And in verse 27, which we did read, we heard Paul mention the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ. Well, basically, Paul links their maturity to the counsels of God. That's where the mystery lay hidden for so long. Knowledge of God, from God, that only God can give, since only God knows his own counsels, until or unless he reveals them. I guess there must be a wealth of counsels of God that are completely inscrutable to us, unknown by us. We may never plumb their depths, even in eternity. Yet, in his mercy and in his wisdom, God has chosen to reveal his counsels that we need to know in a unique and a wonderful way, and that's in Christ. There's an awful lot to ponder here. 
in verse 2. So will you let me peel back the lid just a little bit? I think there's comfort, or maybe we could say consolation. Paul hopes that the Colossians will be encouraged from deep within, so there's that in the counsels of God. There's also loving concord, unity, into which he wants to see them move, united as one in love, always a challenge for any congregation of people. You really only need a couple or three to discover that concord can be hard to achieve. And there's full cognizance or a full grasp of the revealed counsels of God, really getting it, understanding it, knowing it, seeing what the difference is for your life. Paul longs for them to possess these things. And as we peer into the mists of this mystery, what Paul sees and what we see is that that's, that's it all in a nutshell. You in Christ with all the mystery that is in him and Christ, believe it or not, in you. So let's recap. What's at stake for Paul? Well, living out his God-given commission with his cause, seeing the Colossians fully mature one day in Christ, and he counts the cost of that for his apostolic ministry, and he engages in daily combat to make that sure out of concern for the churches and all that they might fully know the counsels of God in Christ and that nothing that is revealed would remain hidden from them. Christ, no longer hidden, now revealed in God's good news for Gentiles. And yet, in Christ, within him, there's still something hidden. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Christ, the very wisdom of God. Would you just stare at that for a moment? What an extraordinary statement. Do you remember the Queen of Sheba? And her long trip to visit Solomon, so famed was the wisdom that God had given him. And do you remember how Israel's faith, how, how do you know a God who's immortal, invisible, only wise, as one of our hymns puts it, in light and accessible, hid from our eyes, most blessed, most glorious, etc.? Well, you know him insofar as he reveals himself. And in the Old Testament, he reveals himself in the wisdom of a Solomon or, or in Lady Wisdom herself, who spoke to us just a few moments ago as the team led us with Proverbs 8 and Job 28. Wisdom is better than jewels. All that you may desire cannot compare with her. Riches and honor are with wisdom, as are enduring wealth and prosperity. That was Proverbs only God understands the way to wisdom. There's the councils again. The way to wisdom or the place where it is to be found. Truly, the fear of the Lord. That is wisdom. But nobody in the Old Testament caught more than a glimpse of the real treasures of God's wisdom and knowledge. Until the day 
that the old became new and they set eyes on Jesus in whom what had been hidden was finally revealed. And yet, what fool's wisdom he seemed to bring. The kingdom of heaven, Matthew 13, is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. Remember that one? On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Wisdom? Did you ever hear anything so crazy? So extravagantly daft, unwise as to blow everything just on one priceless pearl? Ah, but, says Paul, this is hidden treasure, concealed for all to see in God's own fool from Nazareth, wisdom incarnate. This upside-down wisdom embodied by Jesus Christ. There's really only one word for it. We have to call it a cache. You know what a cache is, a hidden treasure store. Christ himself, it turns out, is the priceless pearl. Taking up your cross and following him, that's the way of wisdom. Slightly ahead of cue. And uh, apologies to those of you who weren't even born when this troubadour was doing his stuff, but unless you can find me one that's more recent that says it as well or better, let's hear what Michael Card thinks of this fool's wisdom.
And maybe more than one of you was thinking of Paul's own take on this upside-down kind of wisdom as he turns the Corinthians on their head with all of their talk of, of wisdom and shows how the wisdom of God is folly to human beings and vice versa. You in Christ and Christ in you, hidden wisdom revealed to your faith. What treasure. Christ, the priceless jewel. And what is listening to Paul talk about him here to the Colossians if it isn't handling this treasure? And what is listening to or reading or reflecting on God's word in Scripture if not touching treasure? What an immense privilege. But beware, says Paul, verse 4, I'm saying this so that no one may deceive you with plausible arguments. Hmm. Technically, I suppose, listening to a sermon, reading a Christian book, or some theology could rob us of our faith rather than help us. Technically, anyway, going in deeper could theoretically take us away from Christ. That's the danger of plausible arguments. They're, well, plausible. A minister's fancy talk, a clever writer's words could just turn your head or mine if we weren't very careful, and there are probably a few stories from church history to back that up. Various suggestions have been made as to what it was that was convincing sounding, but they needed warned about in Colossae. We have a bit of difficulty figuring out exactly what it was that was trending there at the time. If you are interested enough and you read on in Colossians, you might get a few clues. be interesting to see what you think uh, it was that they were listening to. But whatever it was then, it will be different now. What we need to watch out for today, well, that will depend on the zeitgeist in our times. But the bottom line for Paul is that these believers shouldn't be conned. They shouldn't be deceived. They shouldn't be cheated by clever words, whosoever they are, whatever they say. And isn't that the bottom line for us too? The church in our city, your congregation here in Orangefield, needs to be able to tell the treasure from the trash, doesn't it? It needs believers who aren't going to be conned by the sham pearls that glitter at us. It's a very imagey, glittery world. Trendsetters in media, culture, I was going to say politics, but clearly that doesn't apply, at least not close at hand, though there's always Brexit to think about. Maybe even trends from theological books or articles, there are any number of them, not conned. Well, you will probably be very glad that we're almost done, because if almost all the circles have something in them, uh, your uh, deliverance must be, must be near. But there is one remaining question, and I think it's this one. How mature do you think Paul thought the Colossians actually were at this point, if it's all about their maturity ultimately? You know, how are they doing? What would he give them out of 10? Have they made it? And of course, what about Gary's memory, 
private thoughts rather than publicly expressed. One's about the maturity of Orangefield. What, what does Danny, your convener, think? What, what will the search committee tell the hopefuls um, about you when uh, the hopefuls come uh, in interest for the vacancy? Well, I don't know about Orangefield, but let me tell you what I think Paul says in verse 5 about Colossae. He doesn't seem to be too vexed. Don't seem too worried about how they're doing in the Lycus Valley. They're pretty much up to speed. He and Epaphras and the others with how things are going, and they're pretty pleased with what they've been told. You realize that almost all Paul's letters, not quite all, but almost all were written to his correspondents because he couldn't be with them in body. They're a kind of a proxy visit, you might say. And here too, although he's physically absent, he's mentally present. He knows how they're doing, and he tells them how often he's thinking of them, praying for them. That's an expression of the concern that we noted earlier. So what's he thinking? Well, basically, it seems to me that everything is under control in Colossae. Because he mentions their orderliness. Um, I had it in italics uh, in, in the verse when we, when we read it. And that's because, I'm sorry, it's my suggestion. Uh, the NRSV, which I was using at that point, actually has the word morale, which I think is unique among English versions. They typically have good order. And the word is order or orderliness. The Colossians are ship shape. They're, they're fine and dandy. This church has got it together, whatever is your favorite kind of expression for order. And he mentions also the firmness or the, the compact strength of their faith. And they're going to need that, a faith that stays firm to the end, to reach the maturity in Christ for which Paul is working so hard. He's already mentioned their faith in Christ Jesus right at the start of the letter. And he's confident that it remains strong. So would Orangefield or St. Field Road, where I worship, also pass Paul's how are you doing on the maturity road test? There is something for elders and other leaders and members to ponder. Well, in this short passage, Paul has taken the Lycus Christians and you and me to the very heart of the very wisdom of God in Christ. You in Christ and Christ in you. A real treasure trove. In another letter from prison, the one we sampled when I was with you last, Philippians, Paul confesses that actually there's really only one thing that matters, knowing Christ and after what we've seen, maybe that's the note on which to end. So I'm going to call it a day there and hand back to Dave and to the musicians as we sing about knowing Jesus and how there's no greater thing. And with that and some other praise, we will bring our worship to a close. <laughs>